of peace. We are going to look at a passage in the Bible called the Millennium, which is found in Revelation, the 20th chapter. And there have been, again, many different views about the Millennium and what it means and where it's spent and so forth. And we want to look into that tonight. Have you ever wanted to go into space? I've always enjoyed stories of space exploration. I was really into the Apollo missions when I was a little kid and I've always sort of followed the space program. I remember when the first space shuttle took off, my physics teacher had invited us into the class and we watched it live on television from our uh, physics class in the UK. But um, I've always been interested in space exploration. There was a man, his name is Dennis Tito, he's there on the screen. And he was, he used to work for NASA. He was uh, part of their Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He worked there for a while. Became a very wealthy man. He then left NASA. And he wanted to be a space tourist. He wanted to go into space. And he approached NASA. And NASA said, no, sorry, we don't take space tourists. We only take astronauts that we've trained. And we only do, you know, scientific projects up there. We don't just take people for the fun of going up into space. But he was determined, and so when NASA turned him down, he approached the Russians. And the Russians said, yeah, we'll take you for a price. And the Russians took him in one of their Soyuz spacecraft up to the International Space Station, and he spent eight days there in April 2001. He became the first space tourist, and it only cost him $20 million. The good news is that the Bible tells us that we're going to take a trip into space and it won't last just eight days. It's going to last a thousand years and it's already been paid for. Your ticket's been paid for. And so I find that pretty good. We're going to look at the subject of the millennium tonight. When you look at the Bible... And you look at the chronology of the Bible, and that is to say that when you read in the Bible, it says that Adam was 130 years of age, and he had a son called Seth. And Seth was, I think, 105 years of age, and then he had a son. And you have these dates from father, son, father, son, all the way up to Abraham. And from from about Adam to Abraham, there are approximately 2,000 years, 2,000 years of the patriarchs. And God preaches the gospel to the world through those patriarchs, through people like Abel and Seth and Noah and Enoch and so forth. Then you come to the time of Abraham. Abraham's born approximately 2000 BC. And then Abraham becomes God's vessel to take his message to the world through his family. And it's the family of Abraham for the next 2000 years that really carries the flag for God and his message. And then you come to the time of Christ and the last 2,000 years God has been carrying, the, the, the Christian church has been carrying the flag for God to the world. And we have a, a span of approximately 6,000 years on this earth that the gospel has been sown, the seed of the gospel has been sown. But the Bible talks about a millennium, a thousand years of peace that we will spend with Christ. Let's open up the Bible to Revelation chapter 20 and verses 1 to 3. I want you to notice what the Bible says there. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. 
And he cast him into the bottomless pit, shut him up, and set a seal on him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So this millennium begins with, the, with Satan, the devil, being bound for a thousand years. Now that's good news. If, the, if Satan and the devil is bound or restricted, that's got to be good news because he's been running around causing havoc for thousands of years on this planet. We're going to talk about this millennium, this 1,000 years, that's really what it means. Mille is 1,000 and annum is a year, so 1,000 years. The millennium in the Bible is bound by two resurrections. You remember we talked about what happens when you die last night. And we noticed that there would be two resurrections, the resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the wicked. And here they are. Resurrection of life, that's at the beginning of the millennium and the resurrection of damnation at the end of the millennium. And you'll see how this plays out in the language of Revelation 20. Jesus himself said in John 5, 28 and 29, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. As we approach the subject of the millennium tonight, we're going to look at it in three sections. We're going to look at events at the beginning of the millennium, we're going to look at events during the millennium, and we're going to look at events at the end of the millennium. And that's how we'll make best sense of this topic. So the events at the beginning of the millennium, and you can notice there the background picture, Jesus returns... And that really begins the millennium. We've noticed this verse already, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and then the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. The other night when we covered the topic of what happens to you when you die is such a pivotal teaching of the Bible because many other teachings of the Bible sort of revolve around it. This teaching of the millennium, for instance, only, it makes, only makes sense if we understand that, that truth about what happens when you die. Uh, the second coming of Christ. I didn't mention this last night, but perhaps I should have. The second coming of Christ is one of the central teachings of the New Testament. It appears over 300 times in the New Testament. But it has been neglected by much of the Christian church. Why? Because they believe, most people believe, that when you die you go straight to heaven. And if that's the case, why the second coming? Who needs it? You're already in heaven, right? But the Bible tells us, no, you're asleep in the grave until the second coming. Then the resurrection takes place. And this helps us to understand when we're on earth, when we're in heaven, and all of that. So the Bible tells us that when Jesus returns, there is a resurrection. The dead in Christ rise first, then we who are alive and remain are caught up to meet them in the air. And let's go to Revelation chapter 20, verses 5 and 6. It says, this is the first resurrection. Remember the Bible had said, the dead in Christ shall rise first, right? It uses that term, the dead in Christ shall rise first. That's the first resurrection. 
And here it refers in Revelation 20 to the first resurrection. It says, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. We can understand that because that's the dead in Christ. Right? Over such the second death has no power. We'll talk about the second death in a moment. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now I've got to pause here because this is, to me, absolutely phenomenal. I don't know if you caught or grasped the importance of that last line. It says, they shall reign with him a thousand years. What does that mean? I mean, it doesn't say we'll live with him for a thousand years, although that would be good enough, right? But it says we're going to reign with him. There's a verse in Revelation chapter 3, and verse 20, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Whoever you know, opens to me, I will come in and dine with him. He says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. We're going to share the throne of Christ? Can you believe that? Can you imagine it? It doesn't say we're just going to live with him a thousand years. It says we shall reign with him a thousand years. In Revelation chapter 1, it tells us that we're going to be kings and priests to God. Blow your mind. I mean, seriously, you need to think about this. The Bible in the New Testament, it says we are joint heirs with Christ. Do you get that? Joint heirs with Christ. He's the king of kings. This is amazing. But that's what it tells us. We are going to reign with him a thousand years. Always wanted that vacation, didn't you? The millennium, Revelation 20, verse 4, it says, And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Re-emphasizes that. Okay, so when Jesus returns, the dead in Christ rise, we who are alive and remain are caught up to be with him in the air. What happens, but what happens to the wicked? Well, let's read about it. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and verse 8, it says, And then the lawless one, that'll be the wicked, will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So when Jesus is revealed, we talked about this this morning, didn't we, that our God is a consuming fire. When God turns up and reveals his glory... Those who have still sin in their lives cannot bear to be in the presence of Christ. And they're destroyed by the brightness of his coming. This is why we must bring our sins to Jesus and say, Lord, have mercy on me, forgive me a sinner, and he will be faithful to forgive us our sins because he's just a wonderful God, right? And then he clothes us with his righteousness. But the wicked will be destroyed by the brightness of his coming when Jesus returns. Notice what it says here in Jeremiah chapter 25 and verse 33. It says, And at that day the slain of the Lord shall be from one end of the earth even to the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall become refuse on the ground. Why are they not lamented or gathered or buried? There's nobody here to do it, right? There's nobody here to do it because the dead in Christ have risen and they've gone to heaven. We who are alive and remain, we've been caught up to meet them in the air. The, the wicked have been slain by the brightness of his coming. 
they won't be lamented or gathered or buried because there's just nobody to bury them. When Jesus returns, there are going to be four kinds of people. There'll be those who are alive and believe and those who have died in belief. And then there'll be those who are alive who are amongst the wicked and those who are dead who are amongst the wicked. The wicked are destroyed by the brightness of his coming. Those who are already in the graves who are of the wicked, they remain there. They remain there until the thousand years are finished. But we'll look at that in a moment. So that's what happens at the beginning. When Jesus returns, the righteous go to heaven and the wicked are slain. What about events during the millennium? First thing we want to know is where will we be During the millennium, you know, like I said before, there are a variety of opinions in the Christian church about where we spend the millennium. Some people believe that when Jesus returns, the righteous are reigning over the wicked here on earth for a thousand years. And the wicked are still here, but the, you know, I don't know, the righteous sort of crack the whip or something. I don't know what happens there, but that doesn't sound like heaven to me. But some people believe that that's the case. I want you to notice where the Bible depicts our inheritance is. Where do we go when Jesus comes? Well, the answer to this question is actually in two parts. Heaven for us will be in two parts. First, there will be paradise beyond the stars for a thousand years. You know, the Bible talks about the third heaven. You know, the first heaven is where the stars are and the birds, sorry, where the, the clouds float and where the birds fly. That's the first heaven. The Bible calls that the heavens. Did you know that? Then there's the heavens where the sun, moon and stars are. That's the second heavens, I guess. Then the Bible talks about the paradise of God, which is the third heaven. And that's where we spend the thousand years. We are going to heaven for a thousand years. But then you may remember that Jesus once said in the Sermon on the Mount, the meek shall inherit the earth, right? So we go to heaven for a thousand years and then we will inherit the earth and there will literally be heaven on earth. So that's going to be fantastic. So, you know, it's not bad. You go to heaven for a thousand years, you might be thinking, well, a thousand years, that's great, but I thought it was going to be eternal. (laughs) You know, we get a thousand years in heaven and then heaven on earth for all eternity. Not a bad deal. Notice what Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled, you believe in God, also believe, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. Where do you think the Father's house is? You know, our Father which art in heaven, right? In my Father's house, he said, are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Where's he going? He's going to heaven to prepare a place for us. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. The thousand years is spent in heaven by the righteous. That's where we will be. Notice what it says here in 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved where? In heaven for you. It's reserved in heaven for you. 
Here's Matthew 5.12. Rejoice, Jesus says, and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward, where? In heaven, right? For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The point here is that if we understood, if we understand that idea that when you die, you go to sleep. You don't go to heaven, you don't go to hell, you go to sleep. If that's true, then the resurrection takes place at the second coming and that's when we get to heaven. Makes perfect sense. Here's another one, Colossians 1.5. Because the hope which is laid up in heaven for you. All right? For you in heaven, I should say. So that's where we go for the thousand years. Blessed and holy is he who is part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. We've read that already. Um, Already mentioned this, so we'll skip over that. This is where Jesus says you're going to share his throne. Absolutely incredible. The saved are with Christ in heaven for that thousand years. And we've read that already. All right. And then it says this. This is very interesting. 1 Corinthians 6, 2 and 3. It says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? That's interesting. I thought the judgment will already have taken place. We had a whole session on the judgment a couple of weeks ago. But he says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? What is he talking about here? In heaven, we will have an opportunity to be able to look into the way in which God has dealt with the great controversy. We will have an opportunity to ask questions of God, of angels and of other faithful beings. I'm looking forward to meeting Noah and Moses and David and all of these other Bible characters that I've been reading about for years. And we will be able to ask them how God interacted and intervened in the plan of salvation. And when it says you will judge angels, we have to understand that before this world was created, there was that great war in heaven. And the the devil and his angels fought with God and his angels and they were cast out. And we will be able to see how God was justified in, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Barring the angels, the fallen angels that went with Lucifer, barring them from heaven. In other words, we will be able to have a lot of questions answered in that thousand years. Won't you have some questions for God? Don't you have questions about life here on earth and how things have gone and maybe how things have not gone that you would have liked them to have gone in a different direction and you uh, want to know how did God work all of that out and we'll be able to do that in heaven. And it says uh, in Revelation 16, 7, it tells us this, I heard another, uh, sorry, I heard another from the altar saying, even so Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Basically, the point here is, this is something that we will echo. The angels of heaven say that God is true and righteous in his judgments. And when we have examined all of the actions of God in his attempt to save as many as he could, we will declare too that true and righteous are your judgments. God will satisfy our desire to understand how he tried to save as many as he could. 
Let's go back to Revelation 20 and to that opening passage that we looked at in verses 1 to 3. Because it says this, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of that dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He was cast into the bottomless pit, and he shut him up, set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. The righteous spend a thousand years in heaven with Christ. What happens to the devil? Well, the devil is actually bound. And one of the reasons he's bound is because there are no more nations to deceive or to tempt. Notice what it says there, that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. If the wicked are dead and the righteous have gone, there is no one for him to tempt or deceive or harass. In fact, the only people that are here on earth during that period of time, that thousand years here on earth, are the devil and his angels. And I just imagine in my mind's eye that the fallen angels gathering around the devil and saying, okay, what's next, boss? And he has to sit there for a thousand years with the fallen angels contemplating the results of their rebellion. It's like a thousand-year jail sentence. You know, that in that uh, passage there, you'll notice this term, bottomless pit. That was how the English translators chose to translate this passage. It's not the best translation of that word. The word in the Greek is abusos, and it really means the abyss, the darkness, the emptiness. And uh, in the Old Testament, the same word was used in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the same word was used to describe the earth before God put plants and animals on it. It says the earth was without form and void. It was a busos. And uh, the world basically will be empty. Notice this in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 23 to 26. It says, I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form and void. Sounds like creation, doesn't it? But as we read on, we realise it's not talking about creation. I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form and void. And the heavens, they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and indeed they trembled. And all the hills moved back and forth. I beheld, and indeed there was no man. And all the birds of the heavens had fled. Now when it says they had fled, that means they were there, but they've gone. I beheld, and indeed the fruitful land was a wilderness. This is like the opposite of creation. It was a fruitful land, but now it's a wilderness. And all its cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord and by his fierce anger. This is describing the world after the second coming. It's an emptiness, it's a wilderness. The earth will be empty. You know, <laughs> we, um, I don't know why we would have a hard time believing that, even the documentary people, the History Channel, which is interesting because they're, they're looking forward in time here, not back in time, in the History Channel. There was a series called Life After People. Um, Welcome to Earth, Population Zero. They're foreseeing a time when the Earth would be empty. I guess they think we were going to annihilate each other or something. But uh, Life After People, they had this series. And then this was a BBC magazine just, uh, what, 2017? 
life after man, what the earth will look like when we're gone. So you have, you know, these popular shows or magazines that are picturing what it would be like for them to be no people on planet earth. Well, the Bible says there'll be a time when there'll be no people on planet earth. Notice what it says here in Isaiah 24, 1-3. Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste, distorts its surface and scatters abroad its inhabitants. The land shall be utterly emptied and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. And so during the millennium, the earth is desolate and devastated. All the unsaved are dead, slain by the brightness of Jesus' coming. All the saved are in heaven reigning with Christ and Satan is bound on this dark, devastated planet to reflect on his rebellion. That's what's happening during that 1,000-year period that we call the millennium in Revelation chapter 20. So if that's what happens at the beginning and during, well, what about at the end of the millennium? Notice what the Bible says here in Revelation 20 verse 5. Five, it says, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is obviously not the righteous, this is the wicked, but it says they did not live again until the thousand years were finished. Apparently there's going to be a second resurrection. The wicked are going to be raised from their graves at the end of this millennium. And then we look at verse 7 and 8 of Revelation 20. It says, now when the thousand years have expired... Satan will be released from his prison. Why? Because he has people to deceive. It says he's released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. Now you may be wondering, what does that term Gog and Magog mean? If you look in the Old Testament, Gog and Magog, they just represent enemies of God's people. That's what it represents. Book of Revelation is full of signs and symbols and most of those symbols have their interpretation in the Old Testament. So Gog and Magog, they appear in the Old Testament, they represent the enemies of God. So here, the wicked have been resurrected, Satan is released from his prison because he now has people to, you know, to lead, deceive and harass. I, I sort of think about who do you think the devil tells them who resurrected them? I bet he claims that, right? I bet he says, hey, I brought you back from the dead. Follow me. It wouldn't surprise me. He's a liar from the beginning, the Bible tells us. So they're resurrected and now he begins to deceive the nations. I don't know what he's deceiving them over, probably about the resurrection. He's saying, hey, I've brought you back to life. Let's take this world all over again. And it says the number of them is as the sand of the sea. Now, we jump at this point into Revelation 21. Why? Because it talks here about the New Jerusalem. It says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, the New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. In the Bible, the people of God are described as the bride of Christ. In actual fact, God's church is often described as a woman. And Jesus, in the Bible, you maybe have, have read this, Jesus is described as the bridegroom, right? And the church is his bride. Well, the church is now inside that new Jerusalem. This new Jerusalem is like a space station 
coming down out of heaven to the earth. It's coming back at the end of the millennium. We're returning to earth. And at that point, in Revelation 20, verses 9 and 10, this is the devil now summoning all the forces of the wicked. It says, They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. In other words, the beloved city must have already come down at that point. They surrounded the saints and the beloved city, and it says, Then fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. Who are the beast and the false prophet? Keep coming, you'll find out. Where the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. But we learnt this morning what that meant, right? Forever and ever, until it's done, until it's finished. So the devil tries to persuade all the, the hordes of the wicked to surround the city of God. You know why? Because first of all, God is still on his throne in that city. But secondarily, inside that city is the tree of life, the Bible says. And maybe that's their only source of, of living forever. But they surround the city. They try to take God off his throne. But fire comes down of, out of heaven and destroys them all. And then it says, Then death and Hades, or death and the grave, were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So we die once in this life, but if we're among the wicked, we'll come up in that second resurrection and then there's the second death. And when the second death occurs, there's no coming back. This is the second death and anyone not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Here's a question. Why are the wicked raised? I mean, why, why raise them? Aren't they already dead? Why bring them back to life again? Well, first of all, the Bible tells us, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. We talked about this verse when we talked about the heavenly judgment. Of course, in the heavenly judgment, those who have accepted Christ, Christ stands as their representative in the judgment. But none of us actually physically are there in that judgment, are we? We're being represented by Jesus. At this time, when all the wicked are surrounding the heavenly city, the New Jerusalem, and all the righteous are inside the city, at that moment, for the first time in history, you have all the people of the earth, the righteous and the wicked, all in one place. You have the wicked outside of the city, and you have the righteous inside of the city. And we, at that moment, will indeed all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Everybody will appear at that moment before the judgment seat of Christ. And it says that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. If we have chosen not to accept Christ's gracious offer of standing in our stead, if we have chosen to attempt in some way to justify or defend our own sins, then that won't be good enough in that time. We must have Christ. And so... We have to have, have Jesus and, and all the people of the world will be present at that point and there are many people in this life who may have committed horrendous crimes. My mind thinks automatically about someone like Adolf Hitler who was responsible for millions of deaths around the time of the Second World War 
And then when he could see that he had lost and that he wasn't going to be victorious and the Allied forces were coming down upon Berlin, he went to a bunker, took a gun and shot himself. He did not want to face accountability for the things that he had done in this life. But God says, no you don't. I'm going to bring you before justice. You will stand before the throne of Christ. You will give an account for the things that you've done in this life. You're not going to get away with it. It's not as simple as just pulling the trigger. You're going to stand before the judge of all the universe and give account of yourself before God. And so everybody's going to be that. For me, I would prefer to lay my sins at the feet of cross today and have Jesus represent me in heaven. I don't have to stand before God and try and justify myself. Jesus justifies me. Thank God for Jesus. He's the one who justifies me. The Bible says, Now I saw heaven, a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. After we have all appeared before the judgment seat of Christ, the judgment is given, the executive judgment, the, the earth is cleansed by fire. Imagine all the pollution that is built up on the earth. God is going to cleanse the earth by fire. And then it says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. God is going to recreate the paradise that he planned in the beginning. You know the wonderful thing about the Bible? In the first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, God creates paradise and places humanity in it to enjoy it and have dominion over it. In the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, God recreates paradise and puts human beings back into it. Everything in between is how God gets us back to the garden. The whole story of the Bible is God saying, you know that perfect paradise that I set up for humanity to inhabit? I am going to accomplish that goal. It's going to take a while. We've taken a big detour, but God is going to accomplish that goal. And not only that, he's going to live here with us. He's moving the capital of the universe to planet Earth. Can you imagine that? That is amazing. So he's going to recreate the heavens and the earth. And it says, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. I find it fascinating that this verse is given in the context of being after the millennium. It's after that period of time where we get to talk with God and with angels about the great controversy where we've had our questions answered. We might say, I can't understand it. I had a good friend. I'm sure that they were a Christian. Why aren't they in heaven? And God will reveal how he did everything he could to get that person to heaven. But they had some secret sins that they never told anybody about that led them away from God. Or you might say, I can't believe that guy over there is in heaven. How did he get in? Right? And God will explain how that person had changed their life, had given their heart to Christ, and they had been transformed by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think there's going to be a lot of people in heaven we didn't expect to be there, and there'll be a lot of people in heaven that aren't in heaven that we expected to be there. Because at the end of the day, we might fool each other, but we can't fool the Lord, right? 
Either we want to live eternally with him or we don't. And I, I want to bring us back to this point. Who decides whether we're saved or not? We do. God has cast open the doors of heaven and said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. He so loved the world. It's we who decide whether we want to go to heaven or not. God has cast the doors open wide. And then there will be no more crying and sorrow and death and pain and eternity will begin. So let's just have a recap in the last days. That's where we're living right now, in the last days. When Jesus returns, there'll be a first resurrection. The righteous dead will be raised. The living saints are caught up to meet them in the air. Satan is bound, the wicked are slain, and the earth is desolate. During the 1,000 years, the righteous are in heaven. The wicked remain dead. Satan is bound by a chain of circumstances. There are no one to tempt or deceive. And the earth is at rest. The earth is at rest. Then, at the end of the millennium, there's a second resurrection. Christ and the saints and the city descend. The wicked are raised. Satan is loosed from his prison. There is the final judgment. Satan and sinners are destroyed. And the earth is cleansed and renewed. And then begins eternity. Why is the millennium so significant? Well, first of all, it provides a stark contrast between the fate of the saved and the lost. The millennium demonstrates that there's a massive difference between what happens to you during the millennium, whether you're saved or lost. Right? God's actions will be justified by his followers. In other words, uh, God's people will be God will be justified in bringing God's people to heaven, in other words. Number three, it provides a heavenly honeymoon period. The Bible talks about us being the bride of Christ, right? Wouldn't it be nice to spend a thousand years in heaven where you don't have to worry about all the things we worry about down here? I mean, nobody in the Bible has lived a thousand years. You realise that? That's listed. Well, actually, that's not true. Nobody who's lived and died has lived for a thousand years. Methuselah is the, the, the man who's uh, credited with living the longest, at least as far as the Bible record is concerned, 969 years. God is going to give us a thousand years longer than anybody has lived here on earth. He's going to give us in heaven. And then finally, the millennium, it marks the end of an era. You know, God worked for six days and then rested on the seventh. He commands us to work for six days and rest on the seventh. This world has been... Devastated by sin for 6,000 years, it's going to rest on the seventh millennium, the thousand years of peace. You know, there's all these sixes and sevens in the Bible. Um, and finally, the earth will be at rest and then God will restore it and make it new again. Second Peter 3.13, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Do you remember back in uh, 1999, the Sydney Harbour Bridge, of course, they always have the New Year's Eve celebrations now around Sydney Harbour. But on the bridge that night in December 1999, they had the word eternity posted on the bridge. Do you remember that? And the reason it was there was because of somebody who lived in Sydney. His name was Arthur Stace. Arthur Stace was... Uh, a man who was born in Sydney in a very fairly impoverished part of Sydney. His parents were drunks. His two sisters ran brothels. He himself became a drunk. 
He went to the First World War and that made him worse. And he came back from the war as a drunk. He would hang around with other drunks and he was walking one day past a Christian mission. And he looked in the door and he saw people inside that Christian mission and he saw that he was dressed in rags and they were reasonably well dressed. And he said to his mate, I think I'll go in there because they were offering free food but you had to listen to a message first. Does it sound familiar? (laughs) And so... Arthur Stace says, I'm going to go in there. And his mate says, oh, you don't want to go in there. They're just a bunch of Christians. He says, yeah, but look at them and look at us. And he decided to go in and he listened to the gospel. And he gave his heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. And from that moment, he determined that he would do all in his power to turn people's gaze heavenward. And he took a piece of chalk And he was not an educated man and he couldn't write very well. But he found he could write the word eternity beautifully. And so he took that piece of chalk and he began to write the word eternity in many different parts of Sydney. He wrote the word about a half a million times around Sydney because he wanted people to think of eternity. And then... In 1999, in honour of Arthur Stace, they took the design of the word that he had written and they put it on the Sydney Harbour Bridge where four billion people saw it. All because one man gave his heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. Never underestimate what God can do through you if you give your life to him. You might think, I don't have much to bring... And that may be true. One word and a piece of chalk. But never underestimate what God can do with that. And today you can go to Sydney and if you go to the town hall, down there on a brass plaque in the ground is the word eternity in honour of Arthur Stace. God wants us to experience eternity. That was the end of one millennium turning into another millennium They thought we were going to enter eternity, but then 9-11 occurred and the world's been going downhill ever since. But there is a millennium that will begin soon. And when that millennium begins, that really will be the beginnings of eternity. 